This is the second Sunday of Advent, and all of the readings for this cycle are good, so I'm going to preach on all of them. I guess the major themes uh, in today's readings have to do with the issue of restoration and the return from exile, and on what John the Baptist speaks about in today's opening of Mark's Gospel, uh, the importance of repentance and how we understand that. I've been preaching recently also about ways that you and I can use to make sense of the apocalyptic imagery we read in the New Testament and to understand always that when we hear these things, they have for the writer, for the community out of which these writings emerged, a historical significance. They're not speaking just about some otherworldly possibility, but the apocalyptic events that they describe, which they may contend will come in the future, are examples of what they have already experienced in their historical circumstances with the social and military upheavals in the ancient Near East. And so by virtue of this, when we hear today in Isaiah about <coughs> the use of that imagery and also in Second Peter, we need to keep that in mind. So Isaiah, or as Deacon Weber said, Isaiah, it lifts the tone a little, don't you think? Anyhow, this is one of the more famous passages in the Old Testament, from, at least from the prophet Isaiah, principally because it also appears in Handel's Messiah. And I expect that uh, most people have heard that sung uh, at least once in their life. Comfort, comfort ye, my people, says your God. But here's what it's about. It has a concrete historical reference. And that is the return from exile. In 583 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia let the Jews return from Babylon to Jerusalem. And we begin now the process of return from exile and the understanding of the whole idea of restoration. Now that we have been released from captivity, what do we do? How then must we live? When we come into Jerusalem after having been away for so long, several centuries, the question is, how are we going to live there? What about the people who stayed there, if any? And how are we going to get along with them? And how do we understand the nature of our worship as the people of the covenant and what it is that we're supposed to do now to be faithful? And so this will begin a cycle in the consciousness of the people of the covenant, of the Jews, and it will constitute for them a continuous reflection on the meaning of restoration and the meaning of exile. By the time of Jesus, there are many who still believe that the restoration and the return has not yet been completed, and that in him they have seen now the completion of this process. And by virtue of that, you and I who follow him and believe in him are going to begin to see how we can cooperate with God's restorative processes in the world in perpetuity. 
in a time when most people think about their religious sensibilities in personal, subjective terms, the way we might want to think about this is how do we understand the processes whereby you and I can return from places of alienation and rejection and exile in our emotional, spiritual, and mental states in such a way as to achieve some species of serenity whereby we feel that this is now coming to some sense of completion and that we begin to understand the ways and the means that we can cooperate with God's purposes for us in these restorative processes, both individually in terms of our own work that we need to do, but also in terms of our corporate self-understanding. How do we as a people become the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love such that you and I are able to labor to create a society where it is easier for people to be good? So today, in this reading from Isaiah, we're talking about some important spiritual, emotional, and mental issues for individuals but also some important ways of understanding our place in the world. This is an example of how God needs each one of you to fulfill his purposes in the cosmos. By the time we get to the time of Jesus and the writing of the New Testament, passages like this are going to be seen and understood by early Christians as predictive of the coming of the Messiah. And they will say to themselves, you know, in our own sacred literature, if we would have read with greater care, we can see what is, had just been played out in front of us with the work and words of Jesus Christ as part of what is predicted in Isaiah and other texts from Isaiah and the prophets of Israel. We can see that God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness is now being offered to everyone. And the people of the covenant, the special people of God who have always felt themselves to be special, are really just the point of the spear. And God wishes all people to come within his saving embrace. And those who are people of the covenant and faithful are going to undertake to make that so and say, this is part of my connection to God's plan for the cosmos. And the early followers of Jesus are going to say, you know what? This process of restoration and return from exile is extremely important, and it will be a feature of emergent Christianity as we move from Second Temple Judaism now into the period of the New Testament and ultimately the parting of the ways, the unfortunate circumstance. You know, there are some people who believe that the most important ecumenical work that needs to be done in the world is the reconciliation between Jews and Christians, that that is something that we need to undertake with all deliberate speed. So Isaiah is setting us up for God's comforting work, in his restorative processes at work in the world. You know, when I was working on this sermon, I was thinking about comfort my people. And it popped into my head. As you know, things pop into my head. And one of the things that did was C.S. Lewis, in one of his writings, describes the difference 
between Victorian angels and medieval angels. And he said Victorian angels have always looked to him like they have kind of fluttered down and said to us, they're there. And the medieval angels have come down and have said to us, fear not. So suppose you were going to reflect on this text for this week for yourself and say, how can I be someone who's a bringer of comfort? Well, maybe a little there, there is okay. But maybe you're also able to say to somebody, fear not. How would you do that? Not in some pompous or grandiose way, but to say, I'm going to commend to you the practical wisdom that I've learned about something that might bear on your circumstances. Some people understand that practical wisdom is the accumulated response to adversity. What you have learned and what each one of you has learned is valuable to somebody. It is important to God, and it is an affirmation of your role in God's plan for the cosmos. So when you think about offering comfort, think about the, the range of ways that you can do it, not just sentimentally, but in a real and caring way. Ed Friedman, one of the people I talk about all the time, said, focusing on pathology breeds dependency. Focusing on strength breeds intimacy. And so the kind of comfort that we bring in our relational life should be able to foster the kind of intimate connection we have one with another in the community of faith we call the church and in our relational life outside in the world where it counts the most. In Second Peter... We read today from the, uh, the youngest piece of literature in the New Testament. It dates probably from sometime around 120 A.D. So there's a feature here, isn't there? It begins talking about uh, it's not for us to know the times or the seasons. The community out of which this letter emerged were facing a reality. Here we are, three generations away from the Christ event, the promises that Jesus will return, and he's not here yet. What do we do? Well, some people could get worried or nervous. Some people could fall back on crackpot explanations of how the world is going to come to an end. And the writer of this epistle says, that's not for us to know. That we need to do some things in the interim. One of them is to pay attention. And to be watchful. And to read the signs. You know, in some faith traditions, including our own, we call that mindfulness the way in which you pay attention and focus on what you need to do. When I was in seminary, the dean, who was an old-fashioned man, used to refer to those things as 
the duties of state. Get up and brush your teeth in order to be equipped for work in the world today. So we need to be watchful. We need to understand the importance and significance of watchfulness. Since there appears to be some gap between how they understood the second coming and the first coming, maybe it's going to provide us with the opportunity to do some of the internal work we need to do. We would call that, using the traditional language, holiness and godliness of life. Now, you know, whenever I say this as a preacher, I get nervous, particularly in this day and time, because holiness can give people the gym jams. You know, do I have to be somebody who is uh, uh, pure and unblemished? Uh, do I need to labor in some way to be a part, which is one of the ways we define what holiness means? Do I have to sort of stand, oh, is it some remove from everyone in order to do all of this kind of work? Do I have to become a Puritan? You know, and some people believe that H.L. Mencken was right when he said a Puritan is somebody who is desperately afraid that somebody somewhere is enjoying themselves, right? So do we need to walk around with doer expressions on our face and to be sort of, you know, one-note Johnny and a, a sort of religious mania that governs the way you and I interact with one another? Or do we need to cultivate the highest and best of our humanity, which is deeply spiritual and deeply godly and very holy? The biblical witness tells us that we are made in God's image. Father Thomas Keating takes that and says, we are not God, but our true self is God. And so our Christian spiritual, emotional, and mental work may need to revolve around how we now, as we live, become less unlike God. What the Eastern Orthodox call deification, theosis. So Peter is saying there's plenty to do in the interim. And maybe we should understand it this way. The imagery that he's referring to, for all I know, could refer to the periodic persecutions of Christians that began uh, around then. You know, you should understand that Christians were persecuted and martyred in a kind of punctuated way in history. It wasn't some endless, relentless persecution of Christians. There were intense periods in the Roman Empire when in different regions of the Roman Empire, Christians were persecuted with no let up. And in other places where there was a fair amount of uh, toleration and things went pretty good. So Peter may be speaking or the author of this epistle may be speaking about some circumstances that they had experienced in their own community life with upheavals like that, cataclysmic events, trying to make sense out of that. But the main thing that this author is at pains to say is the kingdom of God, the return of the Savior, however we understand Jesus coming 
And as I said last week, he could be coming again and again into your heart. That's what I believe. And so we pray for that and experience that throughout our lives. It's going to happen here. And the values of the kingdom of God are going to be made present here and transform the world. And Christian people have faith that that will be so and that they're part of this process in big and small ways. So always understand that it is something that has to do with the here and the now. You know, that may sound awfully idealistic to some of you. And my only response to that is, if there are any people in the world that ought to be idealistic, it's we Christian people. We ought to always see the best and always urge the best on everyone in life. In the reading from Mark's Gospel, we have the introduction, every year I say this, uh, to John, don't sing Jingle Bells to me, the Baptist. Uh, where did I get that? When I was a young priest at St. Michael's Church in Tucson, Arizona, we had a shrine right near the altar like this one here with Jesus Pantocrator, Christ the teacher is what that means. And it was a uh, shrine to John the Baptist and it had a beautiful Mexican statue of John the Baptist in a camel hair outfit with his leather strap looking uh, particularly spooky, you know. And Clint was preaching a sermon one day during Advent, maybe this Sunday in Advent, and he pointed to the statue and said, try singing jingle bells to that guy. You know, there is something about the account of John the Baptist which might say he perhaps was a bit serious about what he was doing and maybe a little short on the sense of humor part of the way in which we approach uh, the deep, deep things of faith and belief. Some people have to be this way to fulfill God's purposes, but we don't want everyone like this. It just wouldn't do in some ways. But John the Baptist is now introduced as the precursor to the coming of Jesus. You know, John the Baptist was something of um, an embarrassment to the early Christian church. He's reported in all four Gospels. He very well may have been Jesus' cousin. And there were many people who believed he was the Messiah. In fact, there's still some people around in the, ancient, in the Near East today who do. And they're called the Mandeans, who believe that John the Baptist was the Messiah. But in the New Testament, he becomes the herald of the gospel, the announcer of the gospel. Jesus, in some way, was connected to him because he's baptized by John the Baptist. And he accepts that John the Baptist's baptism was necessary, as he says in Matthew's gospel, to fulfill all righteousness. But we also know that the Savior's ministry, his teaching, preaching, and mighty works took a left turn. 
from John the Baptist after his baptism, after his going into the wilderness for a period of reflection and prayer and his return, he now comes to announce the presence of the kingdom of God in his words and in his works and the possibility for the transformation of the world. So John the Baptist is significant and his relationship to Jesus is significant. Repentance is the theme that's introduced in this reading and repentance, as Father Thomas Keating says, is to change the direction you're looking for happiness. I mean, preach. I say all the time, it comes from a, a Greek word, metanoia, which means to turn around, to look at things from a different perspective. All of that's true. But it has something to do with uh, those irrational programs for happiness that every one of us have centered around security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. These three areas must be handled emotionally, spiritually, and mentally for there to emerge in the human person some species of serenity and capability and internal strength and self-regulation. We don't deny the need for those things. All of us need to be concerned about our survival and our security. We need to be concerned about the power and control we have in our lives. And all of us need and want affection and esteem and deserve it. But we have to find the ways and the means to do this that doesn't get us off the rails. You know? I think the term, what have you done for me lately, is an example of one of those things, right? So repentance has something to do with how we get all those things in sync and how we're checking on a regular basis uh, about all of that, how we can turn around and look at things in a new way. It's particularly hard to do this time of year because... uh, This doesn't seem to be the season where we spend much time figuring what we can do without. You know, and after all, we got to get this economy moving. I've said this to you before. If we were all going to wake up tomorrow morning and say, we're going to live lives of complete renunciation. I'm now giving up all my stuff. Well, who's going to buy the stuff? Who's going to employ the people to make the stuff? We're talking about a fairly significant reordering of society. We may want to do that with a whole society full of converted people. But the way things are at the present moment, we have to in some way be realistic about our idealism. So whenever you read the stories about John the Baptist, uh, think about that necessity but think about also the importance of repentance. This week, give thanks for the coming of the Savior into your heart. Give thanks for uh, the opportunity, if it comes to you, to bring some comfort and serenity to somebody in their life. And give thanks always for the opportunity to look at your life in a new way, such that you become the transparency and reflection of God's grace and love that you are called to be. Amen.